Hey there, everyone. Hoping you're doing well in general and trading safely in particular. This is Matthew Pipenberg, and welcome to the Signals Matter podcast, episode number three, where today we're going to explore the question of whether these markets are crazy or just enjoying a cyclical bull run. Welcome to the Signals Matter podcast, where it's all about cutting through the fog of financial media spin so that you can think, trade, and manage risk like an investor rather than a gambler. And now, here's your host, Matthew Pipenberg, a true market geek and legend in his own mind of weaving and mixing metaphor to make the complex simple. Hey there, many thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really appreciate it and are looking forward to being a part of your, mine, and our shared journey, navigating the fog of markets with heaps more candor and substance than what we feel is largely pablum and sell-side spin otherwise found on the mainstream financial media. Make sure to check out as well our broad menu selection of market video updates, blogs, and other podcasts at signalsmatter.com where we tackle everything from global market trends and opportunities to stock-specific commentary. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to download as well a free copy of the Signals Matter Investment Primer, which is a very user-friendly but deeply substantive collection of our best investment thinking and practices, really calling together over 50 combined years of security trading, law, and risk management. In the Signals Matter Investment Primer, we also address everything from macro indicators and portfolio construction tips right down to the grass level of individual security trading. It's yours free, no strings attached, so take a peek. Well, today we're going to ask the question and try and answer at least as best we can, or as best I can, on the classic question that's been going on, if not for months and years, uh, ever since 2008, is are these markets in a recovery, in a robust bull cycle, or are they just a little loopy or crazy? Um, we definitely live in interesting times, so there's no doubt about that. Markets are ripping as of this date, November 3rd, 2017. Fundamentals seem to be fading. Politicians seem to be all over the map. There's rumors of war. Those are increasing, whatever we think of that. Wages are falling. Debt is skyrocketing. The Fed has just got a new chair sheriff in town. I don't think it's a big difference, but we got that going on as well. Um, it's backpedaling, looking at quantitative tightening rather than quantitative easing, talking about maybe raising interest rates, another few basis points. But even the bank cheerleaders right now are kind of chiming in with a little bit of concern. So we want to talk about what the markets are doing in this backdrop of just kind of loopy. Um, I think there's about four or five things we can look at today, but let's start with kind of the, uh, the numbers, where we stand as of, as of this period in the markets. You know, since the Trump election, the S&P is up over 20%, the Dow is up over 26%, and the NASDAQ is up over 28%. And, you know, normally one would assume that when the markets are just ripping like that, there must be some equally record-breaking earnings as well. And as we look at that, um, and as we look at the data, though, the earnings just don't support this. And I've talked to professors at school. I was just on the phone today with an econ professor out of a major New York university who's a client of ours who's got a much more bullish attitude and he was talking about earnings and you know the Fed has done things right and we're on a recovery now and it's finally proving that maybe the Fed really did have something right and we went back and forth on this debate it was pretty lively and fun but we kind of looked at the graphs together and I said you know you if you know if you really look at this professor the 
the, the earnings aren't actually that robust. Uh, we do have a hell of a lot of ETF flows and mainstream financial media hype and a lot of cheerleading from the Fed, of course. But if you actually look at a graph of the S&P chart, you know, looking at the trailing 12-month earnings per share uh, versus uh, where that is as opposed to where the S&P itself is going, uh, you'll see that there's really just since 2014, earnings have actually been going down, stagnating, or going up in very small measures kind of flatlining on the earnings graph, but the S&P graph just continues to go up and to the right. And on the eve of the last financial crisis in 2008, just to keep this in mind, the average earnings for the S&P was just about $85 per share. But one decade market bubble and 5x increase in the monetary balance sheet later, you'll notice, or you would notice on this graph, that the average earnings have only climbed by about 2% a year to about $100 a share today. Now again, with all the steroids and stimulus that I've talked about in prior blog on the Federal Reserve, when you think of all the, uh, the martinis and beer given to this market since the crisis in 2008, and the massive expansion of our balance sheet, and this huge tailwind of low interest rate policy out of the Fed, and this unprecedented historical dumping of liquidity into the markets to the tune of almost $4 trillion, with all that headwind behind these markets, uh, actual earnings have only gone up about, you know, 2% a year over 10 years. Uh, that doesn't make sense. That disparity between earnings and, uh, and, and market price, just inflation, just this huge bubble that we're in. And, you know, again, this is an opinion. You just look at the graphs, you look at the numbers, you get behind or get away from the mainstream media spin and you actually break it down mathematically it's not nearly as sexy as the press or this market, this crazy hockey stick up into the right market would, would suggest. So what we're seeing then isn't really a massive increase in earnings and robust productivity and therefore great company reports and therefore a great stock market. What we're seeing is just a heck of a lot of momentum, a heck of a lot of faith, and actually not an increase in earnings that justifies markets at all-time highs. And I think if you're, if you're worried that I'm just a, a grumpy misanthropy or a, a market bear who just can't get out of his bearish mindset, which maybe is true, but um, if you, even, if you, even if you take that bias with me, which I recommend you look at with some cynicism because I am a bear right now, um, but even the bankers, uh, the banks that I came from or traded through and that I make fun of all the time in my blogs over the last few years, and certainly in my, in my practice when I'm talking to clients in my fund, um, you know, I'm always making fun of the bankers for being constant cheerleaders because it's their job to be cheerleaders. You wouldn't see the head of a major bank um, announcing their very bearish concerns about just this tailwind of Fed stimulus and that the markets are too risky to really enjoy because, you know, for J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs or Barclays or Morgan Stanley, to have a major executive step out and say that, or to have a Fed chairman or chairwoman get on, on live TV or in the media and say, man, these markets are bubbly crazy. That's just never going to happen. And for the simple reason is they're not really fiduciaries. They're market cheerleaders, and they have to for their own goodwill and for their own sanity and to keep their clients in these markets, which they get their fees from. They have to always be positive. Uh, and you can't necessarily fault them for that, but there's an inherent conflict of interest whether you're a Fed chairman or whether you're a banker. 
uh, there's an inherent conflict of interest there because you have to always kind of be positive or faithful and you know cyclical bounce backs and biting the stick and buy and hold kind of theory. You have to always put a positive spin on things because your business relies on your clients staying in the markets because the more money you have invested, the more they get fees as a percentage of that investment. So you have to kind of be a little skeptical of the cheerleading that comes from the banks the private wealth management teams, or even the advisor down the street, they get paid by you being in the markets. So they're going to always suggest a reason you should be in the markets. And certainly the markets are ripping now and you've benefited from that. But, you know, they're kind of like doctors who won't tell you you're sick because they need to keep you healthy all the time. It's kind of crazy. Uh, and if you'll, you know, as I said in the, in the, in the podcast that on the Federal Reserve, up in the crisis in 2001 with the dot-com and in the most recent crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, which was the Great Recession. If you were to go back and look at a few videos of the Fed chairman or the bankers just days before those markets pounded down, uh, they were all very positive and, of course, sounded just like the experts sound today, just kind of positive and stay the course. So keep a real skeptical eye on the opinion of bankers or central bankers in particular and mainstream bankers in general. But what's even interesting now, in November of 2017, the backdrop of these market highs, is that some bankers are actually coming out of their pom-poms and actually talking a little more kind of nervously. And I wrote a blog, uh, I think it was back in July, uh, where I gave kudos to uh, Michael Hartnett over at Bank of America. He was one of the first bankers from a mainstream bank to kind of come out and say, you know, this market looks crazy to me, and I, if I had to explain why, I would have to say there's a direct correlation between the stimulus, quote-unquote stimulus, from the central bank or the Fed in 2008 to today and why markets are so inflated. There's just a direct correlation to all that money printing or quantitative easing and that low-rate policy or zero-bound policy called ZERP or zero-interest rate policy. There's just an obvious and direct correlation to those two policies of the Fed and this just historically unprecedented market bubble or market rise, if you want to call it. And I think to have a banker at Bank of America uh, come out and say that uh, is, is pretty impressive and, and pretty brave. I'll give them kudos. But I think the very fact that bankers are starting to sound worried is just another symbol or symptom that these markets might be a little loopy. Now, just recently, that same bank, Bank of America, published um, a fascinating report in which they they, they published the 20 metrics they use for measuring S&P valuation. And in that publication, uh, Bank of America concluded that 18 of their 20 indicators showed a dramatic overvaluation of the S&P. Uh, they were looking at trailing PE multiples or the Schiller PE multiple. These are just you know infamous kind of measurements of, of valuation. And for Bank of America... Bank of America to come out and say, look, 18 of our 20 metrics are showing not just overvaluation, but dramatic overvaluation is really saying something about the risks uh, in these markets and the overvaluation. So it's not just a bull or bear opinion. Um, you know, I think uh, it fascinates me, and I think it's fair whether you're a blogger, whether you're an investor, whether you're a hedge fund manager, whether you're the CEO or a chief analyst at a bank, or whether you're just a confused bystander trying to debate uh, the sanity of these markets. You know, you need to have tolerance for all of these views, because one thing we all have in common, whether you're a bull or a bear, a cynic or an optimist, is there is no historical precedent for this market and this 
tailwind that we're enjoying. You know, you can look back to the dot-com bubble that burst in 2001 or the great subprime crisis that happened in 2008. You can go back to Black Monday in 87 or long-term capital in 98. Go all the way back to 1929 and the great crash. Even if you study those markets or the history behind them or look at the multiple ratios, the PE multiples, or look at the technicals and the fundamentals of the earnings reports and each of those crashes or each of those bubbles that ended in crashes, they don't in and of themselves give us a lot of help because the markets are so different today because in no time in the U.S. in those examples or any in any other market, whether it's in European markets or Asian markets, there is no precedent in any of those historical examples in which a central bank was influxing or stimulating those markets to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. And so there really is no way to use or to trust old metrics or old reliables in and of themselves to make sense of a market that we're in that has no precedent like this. So you're basically using outdated tools to try and measure the complexity in markets that are too complex to measure. Uh, it's certainly just having a macro view, bull or bearish, isn't going to be enough. And frankly, Tom and I and, and you know, clients that we have, I was on the, like I said, I was on the phone with a professor today from a major New York university who's an economics professor, and he's a lot more bullish than I am. He's excited about what the Fed's doing. He's excited about these policies. He's excited about earnings. But you know, uh, we kind of made, made sense of that real quickly. But regardless of all those views, um, we have to look at the, at the facts here. And there is no historical precedent to this. That being said, um, whatever your macro view, and we have strong macro views here. Tom and I are a little bit different. I'm probably the most bearish. Our clients are a little more bullish. And somewhere in the middle is Tom, who's kind of moderate. But all of us are right and all of us are wrong. But what we all can do, regardless of our opinions, is put them aside and be somewhat agnostic. What we really need to be looking at, I think, are really daily money flows, daily technical analysis, uh, daily fundamental analysis of sectors and securities and macro conditions. Because although no one can time a crash or time a correction, I certainly can't do that by just having an opinion about the Fed or about stimulus or overstimulus or Keynesian economics. All of that's important, but really, I have to put that aside and really just look at the data. And that's what we do extremely well here at Signals Matter. I think we do it better than most funds, certainly better than the banks, and I think a lot better than the Federal Reserve in our honesty and our detail. Um, and that's what makes subscribing to Signals Matter so important. I'll just have to pause to throw this kudo in here. But we are looking at hundreds of indicators every day, fundamental and technical, so that maybe we won't time that market correction or time how this historically unprecedented market crazy bubble kind of winds itself down. But I think we're going to be far better positioned than most um, to know when to break out the umbrella. We may not time the exact moment of the rain, but we'll see the clouds, I think, well before anyone else. And keep in mind that whether you're and, you know, whether you're enjoying the kind of massive returns we're enjoying right now with our stock trading signals, because we really do control risk and, and ride our victories pretty well. We're having a fantastic run in the markets. Uh, whether you're enjoying that or whether you're enjoying the same returns at a bank or at a hedge fund or in your own trading accounts, and whether you're proud of yourself as we are, it's important to be humble. Because no matter how good your trades are, you can lose eight years, seven years, eight minutes, eight months, or eight weeks of great returns if you're caught in a market downturn, if you're not protecting your downside risk, if you get caught in another 08 moment, all your genius of the last eight years, whether it was buy and hold or active, is just going to fall on its face. And so it's super, super important to keep in mind, regardless of your views, whether you think these markets are crazy or not, that you don't get caught 
in a downturn and that you don't, you know, lose 30, 40% of your gains in a matter of weeks. Because the secret, keep this in mind, the secret to making money as an investor is to not have a massive loss of money, to not have yourself caught in that kind of lifeboat 08, 2001, 87, 98, 29. You don't want to be caught in one of those kind of moments. And if you do nothing else, even if you're not even trading, if you do nothing else that signals matter, then just watch our recession watch or our iceberg watch or our trend watch. You're going to be putting yourself in much better protection. So getting back to the, the question of are these markets crazy, I think it is important to look at the, the, the true, instead of the reported, distinction between earnings and market growth. Markets are ripping, but earnings are frankly stagnating. Um, and to keep in mind also that the second point being made, that even the banks, the, the classical cheerleaders, are now starting to put their pom-poms down. And it's not just Bank of America. Uh, even the folks at Goldman Sachs, where I do a lot of, did a lot of work, and certainly custodied my money through my fund and have a lot of respect uh, some of the best minds are in these banks, and certainly Goldman Sachs has them. But, you know, there's also no doubt that my friends and family over there will recognize that Goldman Sachs has to be um, a cheerleader. They have to be positive on the markets for the reasons I've discussed. Their job is to, you know, keep you in the markets, to keep you confident, because, you know, banks, whether they're Goldman or whether it's Ed Jones or Wells Fargo or uh, your little advisor down the street, they get paid as a percentage of the money you have in the markets. Keep that in mind. So they really need to be positive and, and try and keep a positive spin so that you're constantly invested so they can constantly get their 1% or 2% off of you or whatever the fee structure is. Even even the folks online at Wealthfront or Betterment who charge a lot less than the big banks, and I give them credit for that, but they get charged by a percentage of your AUM, and they need to keep you in the markets at all time. They won't tell you to get out of the way. But what's amazing now is that even Goldman Sachs is coming out and showing some concern. Uh, they came out with a report around the same time B of A did, uh, announcing that the median stock prices are now in the 98th percentile of historical overvaluation. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, for Goldman Sachs to come right out and say that we are at the top of a top that we've never seen historically uh, in the stock market or in securities, uh, equities that is, 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 is impressive, and I got to give them kudos for that. They, we didn't see that on the eve of the 2008 crisis or even the 2001 crisis. The banks were cheerleading up to the very end, as were, of course, were the Fed chairman and Chair uh, Bernanke in 08, and certainly Greenspan in 01 just looked like a knucklehead the day before these markets crashed. They were announcing great progress and safety in the markets. So to see Goldman and B of A come out recently and be a little more candid was, was impressive. I'll give them that. Um, a third thing that I'm kind of looking at when we talk about are these markets just crazy or not, um, you know, Republican, Democrat, or cynic, there's no doubt that uh, politics is not business as usual in D.C. where we're at. And, you know, there is uh, a lot of crazy going on, and I don't want to get into elephant and donkey or, you know, libertarian views or whatever your views may be. I think if you're a staunch Republican or a staunch Democrat, you can agree that there seems to be a lot of dysfunction in the in the in the capital city right now. You know, I, I was impressed with Trump during the campaign on one thing. He did say that we live in a big, fat, ugly bubble uh, generated by the Federal Reserve. And I, I gave him credit for that. I don't know if that was his own idea or something that one of his advisors reminded him of. But since kind of making that admission and kind of being a cynic about the markets, I'm a little troubled by the fact that Trump has made over 20 tweets recently taking personal credit for his his role in this crazy market rise. He's basically, you know, giving himself credit for adding to this big, fat, ugly bubble. So it doesn't really make sense to me. Um, but 
you know, the thing that was kind of funny about Trump, and I think whether, you're, again, you're a Republican or not, you can at least admit that, you know, Trump made a lot of fun of Hillary during the campaign for all the money she took from, from Goldman Sachs uh, for giving her speaking tours there. And I've seen a few of those speeches, and certainly they paid a lot for it. And he, he made fun of her to show kind of what a, I guess, what a mistress she was to the big banks and kind of kowtowing to the big banks. But after making so much fun of Hillary and Goldman Sachs and kind of getting that base vote behind him for doing so, you know, what did he, what did Trump do? He hired two former uh, Goldman Sachs alumni, uh, Mnuchin and Cohn, to come in and be his advisors and Mnuchin to be his treasury secretary. Um, what's interesting about Mnuchin recently, and to kind of keep track of the crazy, is he's even admitted in a recent interview with Politico that um, he's admitted that there's no doubt that this massive bump in the markets is, is a tailwind that's priced in a lot of that bump is based on the hope that there's going to be these great tax cuts and tax reform. And he said that there's really no question that a rally in the stock market has been baked into reasonably high expectations of uh, getting tax cuts through. And this is not a podcast about tax cuts, but I will say, and if you look at my blogs, I do have a section in the politic category where I talk about these tax cuts. There's no doubt that after uh, this dysfunctional Congress and Senate and executive branch couldn't pass the repeal and replace of Obamacare. There's no doubt that there's a lot at stake here, not just substantively, but optically, that the Republicans in, in, in D.C. in particular need some kind of legislative victory. So there will be some type of quote-unquote tax reform or tax cut. But if you look under a hood of that, I think it's not going to be nearly as uh, substantive as it's going to be optically kind of formally, uh, uh, you know, pretty, but under the surface, there really won't be much there. There just isn't going to be. But I, wanna, I don't want to get into that much, but I don't think that tax reform alone is going to be the tailwind that they expect it to be. If anything, it could turn out, turn out to be a big turnip. But one way or the other, there has to be something passed. But if, if you're sophisticated to look into it, you'll see there won't be a lot of pay for us. We're just going to kind of kick the can as we always do. But there's no doubt that a big part of this crazy market is this tax reform hope. Something will probably be passed, but to expect another 20 or 30 percent bump on that, I think, might be a little naive. Um, but what's even more sad to me is that markets and capitalism are supposed to go kind of hand in hand, and that your markets are supposed to go up because companies are doing great earnings and companies are making profits and productivity is doing well in our country. And none of those things are happening right now. You know, our, our GDP as a nation is stagnated less than 2% annually since 2008. Earnings have stagnated dramatically since 2014. Um, there's all kinds of problems at the real heart of our corporate America, our manufacturing base. And yet we're trying to hope that tax cuts are going to save us and I think, you know, what we really should be focusing on is, is, is other things, but this market is, is inflated. I don't think we should be having a market go up because of a tax cut. It should go up because the companies within the stock market are actually doing well. So that's, that kind of bothers me. Another fourth part about whether these markets are crazy is I think um, the very fact that the VIX, which I've written about uh, elsewhere, is, is so low. The VIX is the great fear index. You know, the VIX goes up and down as market confidence goes up and down. Or um, You're just seeing the VIX at all-time lows. And this combination of markets at all-time highs and the VIX at all-time lows, well, earnings are flatlining and that the markets are really being fed by this Fed stimulus and not substance is a real kind of perfect storm in the making. And 
you know, uh, I was at a conference at the Harvard Club in Boston over the summer, and there were a bunch of great CTA, uh, managed futures traders there, talking about their different trades. And I won't give the name, but there was one alumni there who I really respect. He's a classical musician, a brilliant guy in New York, um, part-time classical musician, full-time hedge fund manager. And his fund is doing okay, but he's not doing nearly as well as the other hedge funds that are just making a fortune doing what we call selling volatility. And, and without getting into the details of that trade strategy, what it amounts to is a lot of, of uh, managers right now are selling puts. In other words, they're selling um, an option strategy where they get a premium. They get paid money uh, to sell um, puts, which are puts are for people, if you don't know, puts people buy puts when they want to bet against something. And so if you're selling puts, you're, you're, you're betting that markets are going to go up. If you're buying puts, you're betting that markets are going to go down. And a lot of managers right now are making money hand over fist selling puts or selling volatility because they're convinced that this market's just going to keep going up and to the right. And they're laughing all the way to the bank because they're not really looking at the big bad wolf. They don't think there's a big bad wolf. And this other fella, though, kind of was on the panel, just kind of, you know, calmly nodding, but I thought it was interesting. And I think of him as like, when you think of that fable of the three little pigs when we grew up, um, you know, you had the two little piggies in the straw in the mud houses that were having lots of fun playing and screwing around in the woods. Well, one pig built a house of bricks so that if the big bad wolf ever came, he would be protected and not eaten alive. And when I think of these um, fund managers that are selling puts or selling volatility and laughing all the way to the bank right now, they remind me of those two little piggies that are having lots of fun and ignoring the big bad market wolf. Whereas this other fella is the more boring piggy who built the brick house, is doing okay, not doing great, but when this market big bad wolf comes, he's going to do extremely well while the other two pigs get eaten alive. And I mentioned that in the commentary at this at this meeting. And I got to say, he, he had said that's probably the most uh, interesting and, and, and perfect analogy he's ever heard. So I'll give myself credit for that. But that's exactly what it is. And I think you need to ask yourself whether you're a bull or bear, whether you want to be the piggy in the straw house, the mud house, or the brick house. And at the very least, if you want to be in the brick house, you know, be prepared for that big bad market wolf um, and, and watch it very carefully. Don't just assume he's gone. And I think, you know, in these crazy markets where the VIX are at all time lows and markets are at all time highs and earnings are flat and the Fed is printing, or at least it did print for six years, trillions of dollars and keeping rates zero, that you're really just kicking the can towards a much bigger and badder wolf when he shows up. But, um, they say that no, you know, that there's no big fear coming. And some of these guys on this panel at the Harvard Club um, were saying they really don't expect any volatility spikes or wolves to come because they think there's a predictable central bank policy, that there's low inflationary pressures, and that solid corporate earnings and growth and the synchronized global recovery that we've seen this year is going to continue. Now, those are all very valid points. You know, again, central bank policy, low inflation, solid co corporate earnings, and synchronized global recovery. Those are great sound bites. They sound sexy. They sound, um, they sound comforting and confident. And you could take a pro or con case on each one of those points. Um, I would argue uh, that central bank policy, yes, is predictable. Uh, Powell is going to be no different than Yellen, who was no different than Bernanke, who was no different than Greenspan. They're all Keynesians who really believe in cranking rates down and printing money when needed to support the markets. But again, if you go back to podcast number one on the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve has the worst track record in promoting and forecasting markets. And 
what they do is build and bust cycles. They don't really protect you, and they certainly won't warn you. But as, as predictable as the central bank is or the Federal Reserve is, they cannot control a $20 trillion economy just by playing around with rates. Uh, we'll talk about it in a separate podcast on the bond market. Keep in mind that ultimately the bond market and not the Federal Reserve will determine interest rates. When that day comes, we're looking at it very carefully. But I would argue that as predictable as the central bank is, they don't have the control that you think they do. And I think that first point about predictable central bank policy is really misguided uh, comfort. The second point that was made at this conference was low inflationary pressures. Uh, that we're, gonna, we're not seeing any inflation, and therefore we can be continually optimistic. Uh, two things about inflation. Um, I actually wrote a blog uh, on October 2nd of 2017 about just how bogus uh, inflation as it's currently measured truly is. I won't get into a massive amount of details there, but suffice it to say that the CPI scale for measuring inflation is entirely inaccurate. And if you read that blog, you'll, you'll see that that's not just opinion. There's math behind it. I'd say that at the very least, we're seeing inflation closer to 6 to 7% rather than the reported 2%. I think it's much higher than that. But at the very least, it's at least 6 to 7%. And we all know that any of us who pay college tuition for our kids or just take a bridge over the GW in New York, it's like $15 now or something crazy. Everything costs more money. We know things are going up in price despite what the CPI tells us. And here's the little dirty secret about the CPI. The reason inflation is reported so low by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Federal Reserve is because we are a country that survives off debt. We've issued massive amounts of debt. Our deficit is at $20 trillion. America doesn't survive on productivity anymore. It survives on debt, and that's just a seriously harsh reality. And if we're surviving on debt, the tool of our debt is the 10-year Treasury. We issue those treasuries. They're basically glorified government IOUs to the world. And then we promise to pay that back. And we promise to pay that back with a Treasury yield. It's about 2.2 to 2.4%. So as long as our yield on that 10-year Treasury is high enough that people will continue to buy that, then we can continue to live on debt. And the U.S. government can continue to kick the can and live on debt. And so it's very important to sell that bond to make it look sexy, and to make it look sexy, there has to be at least some kind of positive return. So if the 10-year Treasury is yielding 2.4%, I mean, it's not that sexy, but I guess it's better than nothing. But here's the dirty skunk in the woodpile. If inflation is really 5 to 7%, then that means when you adjust your return on the 10-year Treasury for inflation, you're not even getting positive yield. You're getting a negative return the moment you buy that bond. And if that were in the headlines tomorrow, that would be the end of our 10-year Treasury uh, bull market. <laughs> it would be the end of our debt survivability mode. So it's very important for us to not let the world think that our 10-year Treasury isn't a profitable return. And therefore, you have to make inflation look at least less than the return on the 10-year Treasury. And that's why we basically, as one German finance minister said, when the news is that bad, we just lie. And frankly, what I'm saying is the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Federal Reserve are frankly lying about inflation. And they have to. They have to because, you know, uh, we survive on debt. We survive on the 10-year Treasury. We have to keep inflation at least looking uh, optically lower than it really is because if it was reported as it truly is, um, then we wouldn't have the ability to issue those bonds with the same uh, convincing alacrity that we do right now. So again, take a look at that October 2nd blog on inflation. You'll see that I'm not just blowing smoke here. There really is uh, a dirty little secret going on there at the Bureau of Labor Statistics here in Washington, D.C. It's not just Wall Street that can be full of nonsense. Uh, it can be uh, D.C. as well. Probably not a big surprise to a lot of you guys. Anyway, the third point 
the bulls are making or the two little happy pigs we're making, the ones in the straw houses and the, and the mud houses, is that we have solid corporate earnings growth. As I said earlier in the podcast, if you look at the actual data, no, we don't have solid corporate earnings growth. And if you look at episode two of my podcast, even Amazon doesn't have solid earnings growth. But again, these are all just kind of catchphrases that are thrown out there in the medium and the pablum and Bloomberg and, you know, Fox News or NPR, all these fancy terms like solid corporate earnings and low inflationary pressures. When you really look at them more carefully, it's just not true. And finally, there's the fourth point that was made at this conference in Boston that, you know, there's a synchronized global recovery. Uh, there's no doubt there's synchronized global um, something. I put the word recovery in quotations marks because, yeah, I don't think it's a recovery. I think it's a binge. I think that's the better word. And certainly it's been a hell of a good run since 2008. Um, this binge, whether that's a recovery or not, I, I would debate. But there's no doubt that when the central banks of the world, not just the U.S., but the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan or the People's Bank of China, etc., are printing trillions in their own currency and keeping rates down to zero, that does create a quote-unquote recovery, but it also creates a massive monster of a recession coming down the road when central banks run out of the ability to print more money or keep rates at zero forever because the economies themselves aren't growing. Productivity itself is not growing. Companies are not growing their earnings. So you're going to have a perfect storm of running out of dry powder at the central banks and then companies falling like rocks with nothing to keep them back up. So I would take issue with the two happy little pigs making lots of money selling vol at the, at the uh, Harvard Club in Boston. And, uh, you know, I think... Um, you know, again, bearish perspective, very cynical perspective, but I, I challenge you to look at those numbers and come up with a different perspective, but that's certainly something I think we could do. I think instead of earnings growth, what we're seeing is nothing but Fed bubbles. Um, and really, if even, even the earnings that we are seeing um, reported, there is so much corrupt accounting in, in using non-GAAP uh, methods, non-GAAP accounting methods, and a thing called X items accounting to really manipulate earnings in the same way the Bureau of Labor Statistics manipulates inflation. And if you don't believe me on that, again, I really, really encourage you to check out the June 1st blog on the Signals Matter blog site. It's free to everyone, subscribers and non-subscribers alike. Check out that June 1st blog, um, and you'll see just how statistically aberrational earnings reports legally are and what they do to, to make earnings look much better than they are. And the sad thing is, even with doctored earnings and tweaked earnings and, frankly, fake earnings, even with those fake earnings, we still aren't showing fantastic earnings growth in the U.S. So I think this illusion that markets are going up on earnings growth uh, is just that. It's an illusion. And more importantly, if you're a subscriber and you look at my section in the market school on stocks or equities, you'll see that also earnings is, is really the least important measure of a company's strength. Um, I think the more important one would be things like profits or net income or free cash flow. Uh, the health of these companies, the majority of these companies in the publicly traded markets is really quite poor. I'd give it a C- minus at best, and yet people still report and, and use that kind of cachet or, or that, I guess, that catchphrase of earnings are strong. It's really just, it's just propaganda. It's just a silly phrase, but if you really break it down piece by piece, take the time to look under the hood, earnings aren't that strong, and, and earnings are also highly, highly dubious and questionable in the way they're reported. Anyway... So how will this, this crazy market end? Uh, you know, that is the, the question you're probably hoping I'm going to answer. Um, 
there's any number of triggers that could send this market off, and I'm not going to get into that today. Here at Signals Matter, we keep our macro opinions to the side. I love to talk about macro opinions, but the way we trade and the way we advise is based upon signals, not our gut, uh, not our gut, and certainly not our wise views, bear or bullish on markets and market history and market philosophy. It's really good to have a macro view. It's fun to have. It's debatable. It's fascinating to dig into this stuff. Markets really aren't that boring when you really look at them. Uh, it's fascinating to see them in the historical context and the political context. But as much as I love having a macro view, as much as it's important to have a macro view, um, it's also very important um, very important to really look at what the markets are doing, look at the signals, look at the flows, look at the volume, look at the volatility, look at the yield curve, all the things that we're doing constantly here and simultaneously so that we have more than just a macro view, we have a market signal. And, and I, again, I'm going to leave with that. Uh, we'll get back on some new podcasts shortly on other topics that we've brushed across here. But I hope some of this makes sense. I think these markets are crazy. Doesn't mean they can't be more profitable going forward. And there's still opportunity as crazy as these markets are, whether they go up or down, there's massive opportunity. Frankly, in the long run, there's going to be massive opportunity on the short side when these markets correct. If you're paying attention to our signals and paying attention uh, carefully to what the markets are doing rather than just opinions, I think you'll be able to trade these markets up or down. Frankly, when these markets crash and markets go down faster than they go up, when these markets start to roll, I think our short book's going to have the, the trade of a, of a lifetime. But in the meantime, we're, we're enjoying fantastic returns right now, long and short, and uh, it's just fascinated by these markets. Hope some of these points made sense, whether it's about earnings, whether it's about the cheerleaders at the bank, uh, whether it's about politics, um, you know, or whether it's just about good old-fashioned yield curves. I hope some of these points were helpful in, in helping you decide yourself whether these markets seem crazy or just bullish. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, don't forget to surf over to signalsmatter.com and check out our wider menu of free market blogs, video updates, and podcasts, as well as download our free Signals Matter Investment Primer, which is a deeply substantive but really user-friendly dive into everything you're going to need to know about the risks and opportunities investors face in today's markets. For Signals Matter subscribers, we know you're enjoying our daily market analysis, our weekly security signals, and monthly recession watch, which ensures you profitable trades while keeping an ever-watchful eye out for those market icebergs ahead so you're never looking for a lifeboat or another 2008 moment when corrections come to steal away gains. We really thank you for your trust and obviously look forward to inviting any of you newcomers to our exceptional investing community here at Signals Matter. Our best to all of you, be well, and as always, be safe with your investing.